Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, author Peter Swanson drops by to talk about his latest novel, Her Every Fear. Peter Swanson's debut novel, The Girl with a Clock for a Heart, was described by Dennis Lehane as twisty, sexy, electric thrill ride and was nominated for the LA Times Book Award. His follow-up, The Kind Worth Killing, which we're going to touch on today a little bit, was a Richard and Judy pick and was shortlisted for the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger and named the iBook Store's Thriller of the Year. His latest novel is Her Every Fear. Peter, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Tell us about Her Every Fear first of all. What's it about? Yeah, so the the very short version of what it's about is um, an apartment swap gone wrong. Um, that's the, the four-word version. The longer version is... Um, it's about so an apartment swap between two second cousins who don't know one another. Kate Pretty is um, a Londoner with some anxiety issues and dealing with a, a slight, uh, well, more than a slight trauma in her past. Who um, has decided to take this adventurous move and take up the offer from her a second cousin she's never met from Boston, Massachusetts move to his apartment and while he moves to her flat. And um, when she arrives, she discovers there's been a murder in the apartment building and she begins to suspect that possibly her cousin had something to do with it. And of course she's living in his place, so it becomes a sort of a, a mystery of her exploring her environment and learning from that. This is your third novel, as I mentioned yeah. earlier, um, but you've written before that as well. You've been writing for ages, so what are the sort of things... Yeah. I mean, so it's sort of funny when it, whenever you're asked, you say, this is your third novel. Or when my first book came out, it was like, this is your debut novel. And I think for most writers, that's actually not the case. It's their first novel published. Mm-hmm. In my case, my first novel published was my fourth novel written. I'd written two, two sort of mystery classic whodunits. And then I had written a thriller, um, none of which got published, and then was able to um, find a publisher for The Girl with a Clock for a Heart. And then, really before writing novels, I focused on poetry, which was kind of my first writing love, and and short stories, but I always, always read crime, ever since I was young, and still do, so, you know, I wanted to try my hand at a crime novel. And you mentioned the poetry, and I wanted to mention particularly there's a set of Hitchcock sonnets, um, which I'll get you to tell us something about, but also... 
I can't help but feel they must be well having to watch all of those Hitchcock films again. Yeah. To, to, in terms of writing those poetry, must have been an influence on the writing of these novels as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Hitchcock's an influence on me anyway, just because I started watching his films quite young and um, kind of fell in love with them and became an old movie buff in general. And then as a poet, I think this was actually, in all honesty, I think I was sort of running out of poetic ideas in a way. And so I had written a couple poems in the voice of characters from Hitchcock films, kind of persona poems and that were sonnets. And it just led me to think, well, there are 53 Hitchcock films. 53 sonnets sounds like the length of a sequence. Maybe I'll do that as a project. And it was a great project because, as you said, I got to watch and rewatch all of Alfred Hitchcock's films, which is interesting in and of itself to see someone's entire career mm-hmm. and to see all the ones that you're told are duds and so on, um, and then to sort of come up with a poem for each. It's a nice winter's activity, actually. And then, as I said, do you think that sort of seeped into the... You're always right, reading crime, as yeah. you say, but do you think that sort of... Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that seeped in for sure, and I think, but I think just, you know, a lifetime, too, of sort of being interested in... Um, all sorts of suspense stories, whether on screen or in books, and anything really. Since I was a kid, anything kind of creepy, um, even the supernatural, things like that, just appealed to me. And these two novels, I haven't read the first one, but I'm going to presume, I'm going to make a wild leap, are all set in in and around Boston. Yes. Obviously, you live in Boston as well, but I I wondered why you've chosen to locate everything in the same place. Also, I I guess it means that um, you know the the books are in the same universe as we call it, you know cinematic yeah. universe as we tend we tend to call it now and indeed there's a recur at least one recurring character oh, yeah. between these between these two books but just say something more about choosing Boston as the place to yeah. create the world in. Well, like you said, the, I mean I've, the first reason I chose it is because that's where I live and that's where I'm familiar with. I mean that said, I think it I think it's it is a very good city for a thriller. I think. Uh, similar to some European cities, and unlike most American cities, it's got quite narrow roads, it still has cobblestones, it feels like it has quite a bit of history to it, it's quite dark in the winter, and also, and this is this is sort of one other thing that I've thought about, which is Boston sort of has a reputation as being a city of closed-off people, sort of unfriendly inhabitants. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but it's it's certainly different than, say, a southern city where people are openly friendly. So I think that sort of the closed-off inhabitant type of character, Boston character can actually work well in certain types of thrillers. Like, people sort of... Like, that creepy stuff might be happening under the veneer of, a, like, a more civilized-looking society, which is... Actually, which is the type of thriller that I, I'm most fond of. You, you acted with a little bit of surprise when I said there's a recurring character in these two books. Is that almost almost by accident then? So you've not deliberately set out to have... No, it, I was actually surprised because very few people ever mention this. And um, so I always say that I write standalones, and I do, in a sense, write standalones. But I have had the same uh, detective, actually, in all three of my mm, novels. Okay. So if you do read The Girl with a Clock, you'll find that Detective Roberta James is in there as well. Um, and she's, she's never a, a major role, yeah. but she's often a crucial role. And I think you'll note that from the, first, from the two books. She has a sort of a crucial moment in each. And so secretly, I think of my first three books as kind of the Detective James trilogy, I guess. But it's never been marketed that way. Let's look a bit more at um, How Every Fear then. So 
Let's talk about the characters. So Kate, who is the main character first of all, tell us why she wants to come to, to Boston, why she needs to get away. Well, she has sort of two issues. One issue is, I think, a lifelong affliction of basically an anxiety disorder. And, and being a little bit of, it's something I did a little bit of research on, in, which is a kind of a fantasist who always sees what's going to go wrong next. So if she, I think she says it in the book, if she sees a glass table, she's automatically expecting it to crack. Or if she's crossing a road, she's expecting to die. Now, and I, and I think there's a number of people who have these kind of phobias. The most common, of course, is I think for most of us who've gotten on a plane and had a flash of our imminent death. But she has it over everything. So she, one, she has this that she's dealing with. And then she's gone through a traumatic experience with an ex-boyfriend at university a sort of jealous boyfriend who, who winds up putting her in a, a pretty terrifying, precarious position. And it's led to about two years of agoraphobia, um, living with her um, parents. Um, and she's recently gotten out of that situation and moved to London. And so she's starting to feel braver and take on challenges in life. And she, she really, she gets this opportunity and she says, you know, I want to be the type of person who, when offered six months in the States where I've never been, takes that opportunity. So it's a brave move on her part. Yeah, it's a very brave, big step. Uh, it's a big step. And, um, of course, you know, because this book is the type of book it is, it does not go well. But uh, Immediately. Immediately, right. So, um, so unfortunately for her. But, um, but so, so she's working against a little bit of a um, fear and anxiety in, in her day-to-day life. Um, before we talk about some of the other characters, we should say that the book is written from, although this one is it's written in the third person, yep. we'll talk about that a bit more later on when we talk about the kind life killing a bit, but um, it's written from multiple characters' perspectives. Yes. Tell us why you wanted to do that rather than just focus on Kate. I mean, honestly, I had initially envisioned the book as just focusing on Kate. And um, while I was doing this, of course, I was working out the story of what's happening in this apartment. And it's quite complicated, actually. And um, as I was working out the story, I realized that I wanted to tell that story as well. And that I could not do that through Kate's perspective. So, so we switch, actually, to a few other perspectives. I won't give too much away. But including um, Corbin, who's her cousin, who's moved into her flat in London. So, so we do get multiple looks. But I did, when, when I first envisioned the book, I was thinking oh, it would be good if it just stays on Kate. But I, in the end, I couldn't do that. And um, since The Kind Worth Killing was multiple perspectives, I, was, I, I quite like that um, mode of thriller writing. I think you can do a lot of stuff, um, especially when you reveal information that only one character knows that the other doesn't. You can kind of build a lot of suspense and intrigue in that way. A Kind Worth Killing, though, was there. It's all in the first person. First person, yeah. And we'll talk about this now. I was going to ask this question later, but um, what's the difference then of right? Because in that mode, you're obviously, you know, you're right inside the character's heads. You've got to create all of these distinct different characters and personalities. What's the difference in writing it in the way that In Her Every Fear is? Yeah, I mean, it is different. I mean, I think for, for The Kind Worth Killing, when I chose to do that in the first person, which is actually not my... I'm, I'm much more comfortable in third person. But in the, in the first person, it allowed you to do... A, 
it's become very popular these days, although it's been around for a long time, which is the unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. where the voice that is um, speaking directly to the reader is choosing what to tell you and what the context is. You can do that a little bit in third person, but in third person, you're really relating the facts more. I mean, you might be talking about their thoughts, but there's less sort of trickiness you can go for that. I'm much more comfortable in third person, but I do like to shift that third person perspective so that we get to see two sides of what's happening. Tell us something about Corbin then. I mean, again, I don't know how much you want to talk about, but let's talk about who he is and why he's in the position to do this. Yeah, so um, I can talk a little bit about this. I think I had two two ideas for this book. I actually think most books should have a couple ideas. And one was this idea of um, kind of a modern gothic with Kate being in an apartment of, of a man who wasn't there yet still being scared of this man. So it's sort of a take on the on a gothic tale. And then I had the second idea that I'd been thinking about for a while, which is the idea of an alpha and a beta psychopath. Um, and a relationship um, between two men. I, don't, I actually don't think that's entirely the case. I think it's often the case that it's two men who, who come together both with maybe psychopathic tendencies, but when they meet and share those ideas, they're able to enact them. So it's kind of the classic Leopold and Loeb. I think it's probably the situation in Columbine, um, the American shooting with the two um, teenage boys basically um, found one another and concocted this plan together. Um, and so what I've read is that often in these relationships, there's an alpha and a beta. So someone who is actually pulling the strings and that the beta is often the weaker version or the less psychotic version. I don't know if that's weaker or stronger, but really goes under the spell of the other person. So in this book, and it does dip back in history, you find that there's a relationship between two men that is along these lines. And it's just something I was, you know, I've long been interested in. And so bearing that in mind, and of course that you know we were talking about Hitchcock earlier, and that, you know we could talk about Rope, which yeah, is a fictionalized version of the Leopold and Loeb story. But having now having mentioned that that's what that is what the book is about, perhaps we can also add that you know this is a thriller where we know quite early, early on right. who the who the killers are. Right. So the focus is basically on what's happening to Kate, right. and the ordeal she's going through, right. As opposed to a classic whodunit. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rope is... Um, so so I can, it was definitely an inspiration for this. And in fact, there's like one moment in Rope that has haunted me for years. And it's the very beginning of the film. Hitchcock was quite good at getting you instantly into the story and instantly out of the story often at the end. But it, it opens literally with the two um, college friends murdering a third friend. They're in mid-murder when the, the camera comes on. And there's a look on, um, so there are two, in this case, there's definitely one who's much more psychotic than the other. And there, there's a look on the face of one of the murderers, I think it's Farley Granger as the actor, when he just knows what he's done. He, this man's died in his arm, and there's this look in his face that, like, I've committed murder and could never go back. And it's almost like instant horror at what he's done. And it's just sort of a haunting moment because... It looks like if he could step back five minutes, he would change his mind because he, he sees the enormity of it mm-hmm. instantly. And it's a really, it's a really um, chilling part. So there, is, there are elements of that in the book as well. So then there's a third character, Alan, yeah. who is another resident of the building that, that Corbin's apartment's in. And is, he, well, again, without wanting to give too much away, he would certainly see himself 
as the sort of love interest. Yeah. Um, he's really creepy. Don't we all? Yeah. Um, I mean, was that deliberate? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I was playing around with. So, th- so there's a a man in the in the building who has a history of voyeurism. But yeah, who does seem, but but not the, the voyeur who necessarily wants to wind up murdering the girl, but does fall in love with someone through watching them through a window pane. And he is quite creepy, but I also wanted to explore sort of the gray area. I mean, there's a, there's a number of creepy men in the book, and I think that was my idea, that Kate would be sur- surrounded by men of varying levels of interest in her, murderous or libidinous or... Um, or slightly predatory, or all these things, but that there's actually the spectrum that some some are worse than others, and some are more in her lives than she even knows about. So I think I was playing around with the idea of slightly creepy men, so that to to have someone who is also creepy but maybe not threatening, yeah. I thought would be an interesting idea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Peter Swanson, 
we've been talking about his latest novel, Her Every Fear. And Peter, if we can, just for a bit, I'd like to go back to the kind worth killing for a moment. Sure. Um, remind us the what that story is. So that story, um, it starts with a premise um, in which a man and a woman meet in an airport bar and wind up taking the same flight together. And um, they kind of almost decide that since they're on a plane and they'll never see each other again, it's an opportunity to be truthful. Um, and what happens is the man is so truthful that he tells her he's considering murdering his faithless wife um, because it's on his mind and he's in a rage and he's been drinking on the plane. And then she, instead of her just getting up and moving seats, which is probably what would happen in real life, she sort of comes back and says, I, I think you should and I'd be willing to help you. And then we learn about her history as well. And that, that beginning seems, again, bringing Hitchcock into it, yeah. very self-consciously. People, I'm sure, will you know, recognise... Strangers on the Train, the, the High Smith novel as well, or even Throw Mama from the Train. Throw Mama from the Train, <laughs> the, the parody version of it. Um, um, and uh, that seems quite, you know, self-consciously done because the book goes in a completely different direction. That is yeah. not what happens. Right. But it, it sort of lures us into, the, into this is, oh, we know what's going to happen. We, we, right. we sort of know what's going to happen here. Well, it's funny, I kind of always knew it would go in an opposite direction. And I think, but I was aware that that opening was just so reminiscent that I just, I almost like drew attention to it. I mean, you know, I didn't want to try and pretend like I had no idea I was doing it, but I did know, I did know of course where it was headed and I knew it was headed in different territory than, um, Highsmith's book and the Hitchcock film, which is, goes in a, quite a different theme. <laughs> Tell us some of the, the, the characters in, in this book then. So obviously I want to get us on to Lily, but tell us about Ted first, who is the, the character that we start with. And again, it's in the first person, so we immediately presume, okay, this is our protagonist. This is who we're going to be following. Yeah. Ted, I mean, Ted was actually going to be the protagonist at one point, that the main character, and he is, he is one of the main characters, of course, but he, he's a sort of successful dot-com you know, millionaire slash billionaire who managed to sort of sell off a company prior to um, the the first collapse. And I, I think, so he's he's very rich and he's he's married a, you know, a trophy wife, you know, his his version, an American version of um, Melania, um, Trump's, you know, Slovenian trophy wife there. So he's, um, and he's discovered, and they're building this enormous house and he's discovered that she's become the cliche of having sex with their building contractor. And he's in a rage about this. And he's and he's trying to shake it, but in the meantime, he's just sort of dreaming of killing her. So, and then sort of serendipitously, he meets um, Lily, who's a very um, peculiar character. And then when we get to Lily's side of the story, we, we start when she's 13, um, and learn about her past. And she is, um, without giving too much away, it actually doesn't because she kills someone quite early on. But she is she is someone who philosophically is unbothered by the act of murder. Um, she's kind of a serial killer, but without the bloodlust. She just sees it as a... Um, she has a, a very strict moral code, is what I'd say. She reminded me of, you know, like... Anton Chigurh or, you know, somebody right. who's, like, clearly a psychopath, but in their own mind, they have a very strict set of rules. She does, and because she adheres to these rules, it doesn't bother her. She's not... She doesn't suffer um, any kind of 
regrets or guilt. And as we see in early on, I mean, some of the people she does, she, she just believes that human life is taken way too seriously by the people who, who have it. And she sees this as all part of an animal world where people are constantly being crushed and dying out. So why is it such a sin to just to remove a human earlier along the way, especially if they're a worthless person? And she sees a lot of worthless people out there. So she's just unbothered by this act. But I think she'd be very happy. Like, you could tell her, oh, you'll never murder anyone again. She, she's not addicted to it in that way. She's just, um, you know, she's fine with it. So... She's an amazing character, I would say. She's really great. And, I, you know, I really hope she makes an appearance in a, in a later yeah. book. Um, where did she come from? Yeah, I mean, I had an idea for her initially, but she changed quite a bit. And I think she changed because, as a writer... So I'm not an outliner. I don't know exactly where I'm going. So when I was writing The Kind Worth Killing, I said, well, um, I did know I wanted to alternate between Ted's story and Lily's story. And then when I got to Lily, I thought, well, where does she begin narrating? And I suddenly thought, well, maybe she became this way quite young. Um, So I started with her at 13 and came up with a situation where she felt threatened by one of her parents' house visitors. And then I created her parents, and as I started to sort of create this world that she was in, that world basically defined who she was. And I think slowly she built up and she became, um, it was one of those situations that's always great, where she became more interesting to me as I wrote her. And she takes over the book. Narratively, she really becomes a protagonist, not in the sense of her doing good, but she's the, the central figure in the book. So she kind of wrested it away from the other characters, I think. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, really symbolically that happens to the reader. You think you're going in one direction, and then Lily definitely becomes the focus of the book in a way that almost feels like she's, you know, wrested control of the book away from the others. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually a good way to generate surprise in a way from a reader, which is, um, as a writer, to not heavily outline and allow things to happen. I mean... Some writers sort of say the books end up writing themselves. I mean, I don't quite subscribe to that. I mean, you know, there's always an author, but what but what does happen is the char- the characters grow as you write them, and if you use the characters to determine the plot points. So I always suspect. I mean, I, I think everyone's had this experience reading a book um, or thriller where the character three quarters of the way in does something, and you just think that's so out of character, like that shouldn't, and it throws you off the book. I think what's happened in that situation is that the writer's written an outline and they always knew they wanted to get to this point. Mm-hmm. So, but what's happened is the characters changed as they've written it. So I like to think you, if you follow a little bit the characters' leads, you can get different books. And if you surprise yourself as a writer, then hopefully that will translate into surprising the reader. I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your writing process. You've just said you don't outline. Right. So how was that? I mean, has it, over the course of three novels and obviously in the previously unpublished novels, has that developed? Has how you've worked changed and developed? Or has it, have you always followed the same sort of routine? So my first um, two novels, which were unpublished, I actually heavily outlined them because I thought that's what you did as a novelist. And they were whodunits. So they were classic whodunits where there was, you know, a suspects where I wanted to say, you know, a suspect would be introduced here and... So I actually outlined the whole thing and wrote it that way. 
and then later started to come up with more of the premise writing. It's frightening, though. I mean, I think that's outlining as a comfort blanket. And I'm no way saying that. Um, I don't think outlining means it's going to be a bad book because I think all sorts of brilliant writers are, are great outliners. It's really just whatever method works for you as a writer. And, the, and the, the terrible thing about not outlining is that you always have a moment of fear um, in the middle of your book where you suddenly feel lost or that you might have painted yourself into a corner and how am I going to get out of this? And it's so there's a little more um, angst involved in writing that type of book. Well, I mean, how do you then? Because both of these books, these books are, you know, plot heavy. They both yeah. have a, you know, there's a, there's a gripping story all the way through them. So how do you keep... You know, how, if you're not plotting it out, how, if you're not, you know, like outlining it, how do you keep a handle on where it's going? So I kind of plot ahead as I go. So, but what I'm not doing is fully plotting ahead. So, but as I'm writing, it's not like I'm just simply writing in the moment. I am thinking, I'm thinking maybe a couple chapters ahead. So, um, there are other, in the example of the kind worth killing, other narrators come into play after Ted and Lily. And um, as soon as I realized that they might have a voice, I suddenly could see sort of the next three or four chapters. And I'd be like, oh, this is what's going to happen. This will be the next three or four chapters. Um, and then when I got there, I'd already seen ahead to, you know, the next few chapters. So I'm not, it's not literally that as I'm writing, I'm sort of making it up as I, as I go. Um, I'm just simply not putting the whole thing down. But I, in both books, I have had moments where I feel quite trapped. And I think it can't, I mean, I think it could be a disaster, but it could also, it also might lead to coming up with a really good creative way out of it that might be something that you hadn't thought of as a writer and might improve your book. But it is a, it's a scary moment, especially if you spent six months on something and you think, what if this just isn't going to work? What other writers have been an influence on you? Many in the thriller genre, I mean, a lot of them were the writers that I read when I was young. Um, a young reader of adult fiction, too young probably, like when I was 10 or 11, I started reading my parents' books. So um, I loved <laughs> Ian Fleming novels. Um, my dad had these John D. MacDonald um, pulp fiction novels uh, with a series character called Travis McGee that um, I love. And, it, and they're quite pulpy, but they're actually, he, he's a brilliant writer. He's kind of been forgotten, but he's um, just pro-style, sentence-to-sentence, paragraph-to-paragraph. It's very good. Then I read Agatha Christie, of course. As I got older, I got into uh, Ruth Rendell, really enjoyed her books, her kind of psychological um, dark fiction. I quite like Ira Levin, um, who didn't write a lot of books, but I love his mode of writing. Stephen King, of course, he was someone who I loved early on and has continued to read, actually. I think he's still quite good. And just one more thing from me, what's next? So I finished the next book, although it needs, I think, a pretty heavy revision. But I've written to the end of it, and it's um, and similarly to Her Every Fear, it has a gothic element to it. I'm calling it a little bit of a reverse gothic, because I think of a gothic novel as having three elements, and those three elements are a young woman, a house that is vaguely threatening, a house or an apartment, um, and then a man, of course, with, with a dark past or a dark secret. Um, so mine involves a young man who's just graduated from college. His father has died, and he moves into his father's house with his stepmother briefly and discovers his father had a secret past, and um, maybe his stepmother is not who, she, who he thought she was. So it's kind of a gothic novel, but with a, a younger man and an older woman. 
So I'm hoping that's enough of a twist to, to feel original. I oh, really look forward to that. So that's it from me, but could I get you to read a little bit of her every fear before we finish? Yeah, happy to. So I'll read this section um, in the book. It's Kate has been in the apartment for a couple days, and as I said earlier, she is concerned that her um, the previous inhabitant, her cousin, might have been involved in this murder. Um, and one of the reasons is she's found a set of keys that have the initials AM, um, and the murder girl was Audrey Marshall. So one night she decides she, she wants to find out if um, these keys fit um, the murdered girl's door. And of course, once that door opens, she's decided to walk in. And this is um, her walking into the apartment. She took three careful steps into the interior of the apartment. There was an almost chemical smell in the air. It was dark, but the curtains were open, and the faint glow from the dawn sky allowed her to see the outlines of furniture, a coffee table cluttered with books and wine bottles. There hasn't been a murder here, she thought. Where's the blood, the overturned chair, the smell of death? Was she dreaming now, or had she been dreaming before? Even with these thoughts, she was strangely calm. One of the paradoxes of her anxious life was that in the midst of doing something slightly reckless, Kate often felt the most normal. It was as though her anxiety, always with her, was given a reason for existing. Standing in a murdered woman's apartment the morning after the body had been found, she thought the quickness of her heart and the coldness of her limbs made sense. She was about to turn back, but instead took a few more steps forward so that she could get a better look out of the large picture window. The window faced the courtyard and Kate could make out pale orange light over the flat roof of the opposite wing. The windows on the other wing of the building were all dark, but Kate sensed motion in the window directly across from where she was looking. She instinctively took a step backward into the deeper shadows of the apartment. She watched as the light came on and a figure passed in front of the window, then stopped and looked across. There was just enough light for Kate to know for sure that the figure was Alan Cherney, the man she'd met earlier in the courtyard. The hair was right and the angularity of the features, the slope of the shoulders. Kate stopped breathing, worried that any movement would mean that he could see her. They stood like that for a long, terrible moment, Kate unable to move. He kept staring across the way. At one point, he raised a hand and rubbed at one of his eyes. Then the dawn light that had been building in the western sky edged over the roof, and Kate suddenly realized that Alan might be able to see her. She moved backward, tracing her steps like someone trying not to make tracks in the snow. He kept watching, and Kate pressed her back to the door, frightened of being seen and frightened to take her eyes off him. I've been talking to Peter Swanson. We've been talking about Her Every Fear, his new novel, and we've been talking about The Kind Worth Killing, his previous novel, which I presume is out in paperback now, is it? It is, yes. Uh, Her Every Fear is, is just out in hardback from Faber and Faber. Peter, thank you so much for coming in to tell me about it. Thanks for having me here. It's been fun. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.